Hello, everyone, and welcome to another COVID-19 Law and Policy Briefing produced by Public Health Law Watch, which is a George Consortium initiative uh, hosted or at the Northeastern University School of Law. I want to thank our co-sponsors, who are the Center for Public Health Law Research at Temple University, the Network for Public Health Law, and Change Lab Solutions. Uh, as always, we are here to provide expert legal analysis during the COVID-19 pandemic and hopefully to answer some of your questions on important topics that are still uh, really at the forefront of our minds in our discussions. So, um, and also for more information on the COVID legal response, I want to remind everyone that you can check out our two reports, uh, which are available at www.covid19policyplaybook.org at the Public Health Law Watch website. Uh, the reports are a really wide-ranging assessment of the COVID response uh, and, and all the legal issues that have come up by over 50 different uh, legal experts. So we encourage you to look at that. Uh, I am Lance Gable. I am an associate professor at Wayne State University Law School. And joining me today are my great colleagues and friends, uh, Wendy Parment, who's the Matthews University Distinguished Professor of Law and Professor of Public Policy and Urban Affairs at Northeastern University School of Law, and Scott Burris, who is a Professor of Law and Public Health and the Director of the Center for Public Health Law Research at Temple University Beasley School of Law. Um, you can please, if you if you want to comment on our briefing, please use the hashtag hashtag COVID Law Briefing for questions and comments in response to the briefing. So today we're talking about the shadow docket, and we're talking about some of the really important and consequential developments that have been going on in public health law and interpreting public health law over the past year in response to the pandemic. We've seen a lot of legal challenges over the past year to state and local government orders that were issued to respond to COVID nineteen, and while the vast majority of these orders were resolved in favor of the governments that issued them, most of them were upheld. Uh, there have been some notable exceptions, and these exceptions go right to the heart of how government authority to respond to pandemics is going to be evaluated by the courts going forward. And so in today's briefing, we're going to discuss these developments and the impact of uh, the Supreme Court's shadow docket decisions on public health powers uh, and, and what these decisions might mean for the future of public health interventions in pandemics and more generally. So uh, my first question is, I'm, I'm going to direct it to Wendy. Uh, the Supreme Court uh, has weighed in on a number of these challenges to state and local pandemic orders, uh, despite initially supporting a position of deference to state and local governments on these pandemic orders. The court has, in more recent cases, overturned some orders. And I just wanted to ask how these decisions compare with past precedent for these types of cases. Well, thank you so much, Lance. So the cases we're talking about, to be clear, are all from the shadow document. And I know we'll talk more about that. And they're really all free exercise challenges to state orders. The most recent cases, and they were all decided after Justice Amy Coney Barrett joined the court, and that really marked a shift in the court's approach. Um, and they diverge, I think, pretty dramatically from the current court's own two earlier cases on COVID that were decided before Justice Barrett came to the court, as well as the approach adopted by the majority of lower courts in the early years of the pandemic. I think several points stand out as we think about sort of what's remarkable about these cases and how do they diverge from precedent. First is the diminution, if not outright, dismissal of Jacobson versus Massachusetts. The 1905 case is widely been thought of as the foundational public health law case, and it was relied on very broadly in the early days of the pandemic, including in an opinion by Chief Justice Roberts concurring in the court's first COVID case, which rejected a free exercise challenge 
challenge to a restriction on worship. In that case, anyone who's interested is South Bay United Pentecostal Church versus Newsom. In the more recent cases, after Justice Barrett joined the court, the court had the majority has not cited or relied on Jacobson at all. Jacobson's just absent. Um, although in an earlier a dissenting opinion in one of those two first cases, Justice Alito stated that Jacobson was only a quote unquote modest decision and that it had no relevance to First Amendment cases. He's certainly right. Uh, Jacobson was not a First Amendment case. It is not dispositive. It, its application raises a lot of questions. But I think most of us thought, most people in public health law and most lower courts thought it still was an important precedent and had some messages to offer, the current Supreme Court seems not interested in whatever it has to say. Which leads me to my second point. There's no deference at all to state or officials in in these cases. In the later cases, the court um, doesn't even give deference to the threshold question of whether or not strict scrutiny is applicable, right? We never expect deference in strict scrutiny, but there's an initial question as to whether or not the state laws um, discriminate against religion, or are they general laws of uh, neutral laws of general applicability? And there's no deference given to that question. Nor does the court give any deference to factual findings of lower courts. Um, and in effect, and sort of as a bit of a cheap shorthand, I want to say, it's almost strict scrutiny to strict scrutiny. If somebody comes in and challenges a COVID law as violating, um, as substantially burdening their practice of religion, you know, strict scrutiny all the way. Um, the last thing I'll say is that not only is there no difference, but there's no engagement by the justices with public health evidence. It's not that they're not deferring to what the state says. They're not looking to evidence. They don't seem interested in the evidence. They seem, I think, to rely on their own intuition as to when the states are treating religious exercise as comparable or not comparable to secular activities. Thanks, Wendy. Uh, I want to let Scott jump in here for a second, and uh, I, and I guess the, the follow up is um, obviously the, the the cases where which which have been most um, consequential and and you know that, that that where the court has really taken this this new approach have been um, cases that involve claims of uh, violation of religious free exercise rights. Uh, the, you know the plaintiffs have been religious institutions uh, challenging the pandemic orders, and I I wanted to ask you how that factors into where the, how you think that factors into where the court is going with these cases? I think that's the crucial planetary factor, actually. I, I don't, in a certain way, think these are public health cases. I think they were cases that provided a new majority on the Supreme Court that was pretty, um, ex- I would say, action. Uh, what is what do these say? Activists on expanding the scope of the religion clauses um, to, ex- to, to expand that scope. Um, there are four justices on the court now, Kagan, Sotomayor, Breyer, and I would add the chief justice, who would have treated these as public health cases by and large, and who therefore talked more about Jacobson and talked more about evidence. I think there's an interesting story in these cases about Justice Roberts' disenchantment with the performance of health agencies in making distinctions and justifying them. But I think he takes that enterprise seriously. In fact, he takes it so seriously, his irritation in some ways uh, kind of drove some of his, his writing. But for the, for the, for the, for the, for the new majority, um, I think it's all summed up by, I mean, there's a number of 
just smoking gun kind of passages um, where they just give vent to their feeling that, you know, religion has been mistreated for too long by secularists and it's about time things changed and we've drawing a line right here. And, you know, in in, in tandem the, the way they, they, they state the case as government regulations are not neutral and generally applicable and therefore trigger strict scrutiny under the free exercise clause whenever they treat any comparable secular activity more favorably than uh, religious exercise. Um, they are taking a really simple view of that, of the initial decision that, that Wendy points to, should there be strict scrutiny? And if they can kind of find another activity that's secular, that's being treated better, that's all it takes. And find distinctions about like what goes on in that space and how long people stay in that space and all sorts of questions that, that you know, the dissenters took more seriously. This group just shoves aside, jumps to strict scrutiny and gives us, a, a, you know, a new world of public health. And in really importantly, then they are taking the free exercise clause um, and the religion, potentially the religion clauses generally here to the same place that commercial speech has brought us on the speech glide. So a situation in which things that we used to regard as public health questions um, that should be addressed by some kind of deferential rational basis scrutiny are now First Amendment uh, civil rights questions. And the burden is on the agency um, not only to provide strong evidence that the particular thing they want to do is effective and will work and is necessary, but uh, through the guise of less restrictive means to essentially falsify the, the, the eff efficacy of every other conceivable step you could take. And that's just in practice, not a burden that health agencies can take. And that's where I think these cases have future importance um, for public health. Can I just add something there? And I sure. totally agree with everything that Scott said. But I want to emphasize that in, in the court's first case on this path, Roman Catholic Diocese versus Brooklyn, which was decided on November 25th, the court was reviewing a very draconian um, closure of religious institutions, uh, churches and synagogues in New York. And there was some, I would say, not well stated statements by Governor Cuomo. The court could have, would have, right, based it and found that the, the order was based, was motivated by animus. Or they could have focused on the religion, the worship worship, and where the state singles out worship. But when you get to fast forward to the most recent case, Tanva, this is a limitation on in-home gatherings. And the plaintiffs say, well, we want to have in-home prayer service. But the plaintiffs get to decide, right, that the law is burdening their religion. It's not a law about religion. It's a law about gatherings. So theoretically, if you close bowling alleys, the plaintiffs could say, but for me, bowling is religious. Now, I don't think the court means to go there. But I do think we need to recognize that the potential scope of this is quite extraordinary. And certainly many people are saying what the court is basically doing is giving a, you know, opt-out, right? A most favored nation stance. And so that has much broader ramifications, I think, for public health, because almost any public health law can, in fact, burden somebody's religion. And that's where the danger is. You know, I know you may get to Fulton on that point, but just a couple of points to carry forward what you're saying. The idea that there is a broader agenda here um, could be, you know, supported by the fact that in Cuomo, the orders were no longer in effect. They were, they, and furthermore, 
furthermore, interestingly enough, there were orders among all the orders we saw that were actually kind of targeted in the sense that New York was facing big outbreaks demonstrably tied to religious gatherings. So, you know, there the, the fact that this was a shadow docket case that's supposed to be emergency, you know, emergency relief in situations where it cannot wait. Um, and of course, non-presidential because of, I mean, some people say non-presidential because of the, the timing and the pace and the lack of full briefing and so on. Um, yet the court went ahead and issued an order um, just in case Cuomo decided to change his mind again. So you have that real pressure, um, that sense that, you know, we're really going to draw draw a line here. Let, let me let me jump in for a second and and go back to the, the point about the shadow docket, because I think that this is a this is a relevant part of the story, which is that you know, these these cases were decided on you know, a different procedural positioning than, than we typically see with Supreme Court decisions that change longstanding precedent. And so um, I, I guess I'd like um, I'd like both of you to talk about that. You know, what are the implications of making the, these uh, precedential shifts uh, through this this mechanism? And, and what does that mean in terms of how binding, how precedential these decisions are going forward? I, I, I'll go to Wendy first. Thanks. Well, the shadow docket is a term that Professor William Boyd gave for the orders and decisions that the court renders on cases that are not heard on the merit. It's really its emergency docket. And the key point here is, first, the cases lack oral argument. They lack full briefing, you know, all the parties, all the amicus briefs, the whole rigmarole that we're used to with Supreme Court's merit cases are gone. And their the opinions are issued very quickly. Most often, these are just denials of requests for stays, right, or stays without opinions, you know, whatever, big deal to the party but not the big deal to the rest of the world and not precedent. These cases feel really different. They're issued in an emergency basis, pretty much always um, late at night before a holiday or a weekend. Um, But uh, the court is treating them like they're a big deal, right? First of all, we're getting opinions and concurring opinions and dissenting opinions, right? This is like a big deal. Secondly, the court is treating it like precedent, right? In fact, in the most recent case, Tandem, which Scott mentioned, the court admonishes the lower courts for not following its decisions and its reasoning from the shadow docket. And the court majority cites concurring opinions from the shadow docket. So the court is treating it like it's precedent. I think this is very dangerous because I think, and I want to get back to the point I made about bowling alleys, absurdly. Um, one of the problems with cases from the shadow docket is the rush nature. And you, you do see, get the sense of anger and vent and they're doing this quickly, but you don't get the sense that they have had the time that a court should do. That is really the, the Supreme Court's job to, you know, take a deep breath, deliberate, think about what this means in other contexts. How will this be used in cases about, you know, childhood vaccines? How will this be used in cases about restaurant regulation, food safety, right? Quarant- I, we're not, the cases are being used as precedent, but the court has not necessarily had the time or the inclination to really think this through um, with the deliberative process that I think we would hope for something that is potentially as momentous as these cases. I 
I'm not sure how much these tell us about pandemic control, actually. Um, I mean, we're going to be on sort of recovering or sifting the ashes of COVID for a long time. But, you know, in my in, in my sort of legal realist account of, of 200 years of public health law, I think that no matter what doctrine and level of deference courts purportedly applied, their judgment of the actual necessity of the measure always came into play. Um, and, 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 and when you see a court overturning a measure, whether it's in uh, you know, uh, Juho v. Williamson um, and the plague restrictions in, in California, or it's uh, what I think of as a classic public health law case, even though it's an ADA case or a Rehab Act case, uh, R-Line v. School Board, um, or these cases, if the court, if, if the judge is just not convinced that the health department has it right, or should put it another way, they feel pretty strongly they got it wrong, by whatever standard they are going to step in if there's some significant right being restricted. What we have here is a collision of two really, uh, you know, important things about the COVID epidemic and about the court. On the one hand is the, I think, overall shambolic response of public health to the COVID epidemic. And I shouldn't just say public health, to the politicians, to all the lines that were drawn, to the crazy forms that were made with 16 different levels and different colors and all this stuff, completely nuts in terms of, you know, ability to get compliance and do implementation in a divided country. So that's coming this way. And this way is coming um, a a new Supreme Court or a a changed Supreme Court where people are really really head up to start, you know, expanding the religion clause. Those two things have collided and given us these decisions. Not the whole court. It's four for sure. I mean, in an interesting sense, you know, if we look at like a case like South Bay closely, the the, the, the religion didn't win completely. You know, they got some and they lost some. And Barrett and 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 um and and Roberts were both swings. So, you know, in terms of and again we have a, you know a solid four uh justices who really do kind of accept Jacobson as a as a guide to deferential, prudential judging in pandemic emergency situations. So I think we're going to have to wait and see how this plays out beyond the religion clauses. But on the other hand, you know, to to move to another amendment, um, the, co- the, the, the five diehards here on these cases have left a loaded gun on the, you know, the public health law table that anybody can pick up in future cases and see if it, you know, can shoot a bullet. You know, I'm scared. Part of the mystery of the shadow docket. Um, and I agree with everything Scott said is I don't know what to do with the somewhat mixed decision in South Bay 2 because South Bay 3 vacated the orders as they applied to the singing and chanting. So, you know, have Roberts and Barrett now gone along and said that was, you know, everything should be enjoined? Again, silence, right? We don't know. There's so much we don't know. But I I agree that the, you know, the biggest question here is, um, well, first, I totally agree. Bad facts make bad law and there were bad facts and there was judges itching to change the law. Um, but this opens up a the litigate. You know, it's not just what will the Supreme Court do in a childhood vaccine case, you know, when somebody challenges Connecticut's law rolling back religious exemptions. But it's also the, it's, I think we should not underestimate the extent to which these decisions, and depending in part on what happens in Fulton, and I guess we'll get to that is that invigorates efforts to challenge these laws on free exercise, right? So, you know, if you're in a public health department, you're a governor, and even if you got good facts and you got science on your side, you're going to have your general counsel saying, if this is not a religious exemption, oops, you know, people, right? That, I think, the way these cases will be interpreted and the way 
officials will now worry about exercising their powers in ways I think is is significant. Yeah, and and just to add to that, I think that you know one after after the the Brooklyn Diocese case, you know, a lot of the thought about or a lot of the the analysis looking at especially Gorsuch's concurrence and you know really focusing on uh, you know the, the, the umbrage he voiced about um, religious institutions not being deemed essential. Um, you know, the, you know one 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 takeaway from that could have been to say, well, okay, if you're if you're issuing your orders, don't categorize different institutions as essential and non-essential. But in, but um, in in the later in the Newsom case, it seemed like that really wasn't really that um, important to the analysis. They they came to the same conclusion even without that particular uh, perceived slight to religious institutions. Well, and they also basically said in the most in tandem versus Newsom that in discussing comparability, which is that critical gatekeeping question, um, the benefits of the activities are not related, relevant, right? All that matters is the comparability of the risk. And so, you know, if, and this is an example I've been giving, you know, if hospitals are open, churches need to be open, right? Because hospitals are risky places in pandemics. They're also really essential in pandemics, but you can't look at that, the court says. Now, again, do they really mean that? Um, if everything was locked down, but the hospital or and the police station, do they mean that? I, again, I think that that is part of the problem of the shadow docket is that they're saying things and offering tests without necessarily having thought through the implications. But, you know, some lawyer somewhere is going to pick up that statement and run in a, a way that we'd say, oh, no, that can't possibly be the case. It can't possibly be if you shut down absolutely everything except police and hospitals. You can't shut down crowded, you know, choruses chanting in the church. But if I just look at the opinion, seems like you can. And, and that's the problem. Yeah. So so I, I actually want to uh, make sure we we do also, you know, Fulton has come up a couple of times, the Fulton versus City of Philadelphia case, which is pending in front of the Supreme Court right now. Um, and this is not a shadow docket case, but it's a case that can have some really important implications for um, the future of how uh, free exercise challenges to generally applicable laws are are evaluated by the court. And so I, I wanted to get both of you to weigh in on your thoughts about that pending case and, and what, what it could mean for public health law going forward. Fulton was argued um, back in, I think it was November. Um, and it is a case that is where um, a Catholic agency is challenging a city of Philadelphia um, law that refuses to contract with and place children in foster through foster care agencies that won't work with same-sex couples. Um, one of the questions the court granted cert on, not the only one, is whether or not uh, it should overrule the Supreme Court's earlier sort of landmark decision in um, Employment Division versus Smith, right? which is the case that says strict scrutiny is not applicable when there are general neutral laws of general applicability in free exercise cases. When Fulton was argued, I think the general assessment was the court was not going to vote, right? And there are a lot of ways the court could decide this case on a narrower basis. They could decide for Philadelphia, but I wouldn't bet very much on that given 
um, what we've been seeing. Um, but they could decide to decide it on narrow grounds. For example, they could do what they did in Masterpiece Cake and find animus towards religious, right? And make it a very fact-specific. They could adopt and announce the comparability analysis that we saw in tandem, right? So they could take tandem out of the shadow docket and bring it to center stage. That would not overrule Smith, but that would sure squeeze Smith. Or they could go all the way and overrule Smith, which would be the very dramatic move. We shall see. We will next four weeks. Scott, do you have any uh, additional thoughts about that one? Well, you know, I'm, I'm I'm rewriting a chapter in my public health law textbook on the First Amendment, and um, I'm really keen to get it done. Um, but I feel like, well, I guess I had better wait uh, because the future is going to be interesting. Yeah, and 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 so on that point, I guess we we should probably wrap things up in a minute. But I I guess do either of you have any final thoughts, reflections about where we're where we're likely to be going? What you know, what what is the future of public health? law look like with these precedents in place? And um, what should we be thinking about now to uh, to make sure that, that there there is some capacity to to try to protect population health in the light of, of these types of potential challenges in the future? I'll give Wendy the last word and say, um, you know, I, I think the easiest answer is that the First Amendment has now become unitary in terms of public health. Anything that has to do with religion is going to be about as tough to do as anything that has to do with speech. Um, um, and it's going to be, and essentially what, what the court has maneuvered us into is a world in which the options for um, any kind of informational or behavioral nudge, let alone, you know, emergency responses to sudden uh, sudden, sudden threats, is going to, is gonna the room for that is going to be limited um, if, it, if it touches anything in the First Amendment. Um, and because I, do, I think, you know, as I said before, there is just no way that public health measures will generally be able to satisfy strict scrutiny. <laughs> My slight caveat to that, um, or amendment to that, Scott, is that I think what Tandem also teaches us is that any law could potentially touch religion, right? So, you know, First Amendment, obviously broad, a lot of discussion about, you know, expressive speech, but in this general, we know the core of what's within the speech clause. Um, You know, if anything, you know, people can have religious um, objections to any law. And so I, I, I share Scott's concern about where this is going and how difficult it will be um, to enact and impose almost any measures designed to protect the public's health, both day in and day out and in another emergency. I do think that the core, I think they're feeling newly emboldened. I do think that they were motivated, as Scott said, by some very bad facts and and the crazy of, if I can call that, of the past year. I suspect that they really don't want to, uh, you know, get rid of laws that say you have to stop at a red light if you say, well, God told me to drive through the intersection. So I think we're going to have to see some, eventually some moving back and some recalibration. Maybe Fulton will take us there, maybe not, but I think it's a rocky road ahead and maybe one without stop signs. Okay, well, I, I want to thank both of you for this fascinating discussion and I want to thank everyone for listening today. Um, we are going to be continuing to do these uh, COVID law and policy briefings uh, every Tuesday and Thursday. Uh, we're, we're, we're back here for a number of episodes this summer. So keep tuning in at the at Public Health Law Watch um, Twitter account. And uh, also the recordings are available on the Public Health Law Watch website. Uh, the 
shows are also archived uh, by the Week in Health Law podcast, which is www.twill.com, T-W-I-H-L. Um, and I also want to thank our producers for the COVID Law and Policy Briefings, Faith Kalik and Bethany Saxon. Thank you. We'll see you next time. Please stay safe. Keep washing your hands, wear your masks where they're still needed, and please get vaccinated. Thanks, everybody.